When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are going to be talking about relationship dynamics in White Lotus season one. I'm going to go ahead and throw up a spoiler alert right now because I will be talking about pretty much everything that happens in the show or at least hinting around it. So if you haven't seen it yet, um, just a reminder that there will be spoilers. And I'm just going to talk about season one for the time being because I think it would be a little too complicated to try to talk about both seasons in one episode because... They have almost entirely different casts of characters, are in different settings, the two shows have very different themes, um, and so I think it, it makes more sense to kind of talk about each season in its own episode. So I'm just going to be talking about season one, uh, and I, I although I know that this season the theme is more around like wealth, I, I do want to talk about the relationships in the show because I think that a lot of the drama comes from a lot of relationship crises that need to be resolved that do end up getting resolved by the end of the show, maybe in ways that mirror how easy it is for people to, in real life, to essentially resolve a crisis by ignoring it or going back to homeostasis. So that's kind of going to be the theme of my episode about this show. So let's go ahead and jump right in. So to start off, before I start talking about the kind of individual characters and relationships in the show, I do want to talk about kind of the really quick summary of the background of like colonialism in Hawaii, because the show is set in Hawaii and many of the uh, actors or the the staff at the hotel or characters we see at the hotel are native Hawaiians. And, you know, sometimes in shows they'll be like, and you know, New York City was like one of the main characters. And I, I feel like in White Lotus, the place in which the show is taking place is kind of a character. So in this place, Hawaii, or in this season, Hawaii is is one of the characters. Um, and it's briefly touched on when uh, Paula and Kai are having a conversation on the beach, and he's talking about how his people, the indigenous people of Hawaii, used to live on that particular piece of the land until they were kicked out for the resort to be built. And then in turn, there's a lot of division in the community over whether Native Hawaiians should actually work at this resort or not. And I think this like does mirror 
conversations that actually do happen in Hawaii um, and some kind of complex themes around how people should come to Hawaii and enjoy touristy attractions on the islands. So if you didn't know, I, I know this isn't a history podcast, but just a little background. If you didn't know, um, kind of the way in which Hawaii came to be a part of the United States is that the land was actually stolen from, I might botch this, but from Queen Liliuokalani in 1893 through a, essentially a plot that involved the Dole Pineapple Company, people trying to make money off of the island. If you're interested in that, there's definitely history podcasts that do a much better job of explaining it than me. Um, but that was like kind of the the crux at which the U.S. took over the island by stealing it from uh, the Queen in 1893. And then about three years later in 1896, the U.S. government banned the native Hawaiian language from being used. And since that time, there has just been a kind of continuous history of native people being pushed off of their land, either for resorts to be built or private homes for the wealthy. I believe that Mark Zuckerberg uh, might have bought uh, purchased a home that was like on indigenous land uh, and some other celebrities as well. But Mark Zuckerberg is definitely one that I have seen his name in some of these articles. Um, so like just uh, from the 1800s, it has just been this history of land being stolen and uh, in turn, the culture of Hawaii and like the the native culture has become an attraction and has become seen as like entertainment, and that's really highlighted in season one of White Lotus, where oh, pretty much every night when the families come to eat dinner at the hotel, the entertainment has something to do with the the native people, and they're performing some sort of like ritual or dance or song. For the benefit of these like mostly white and definitely very wealthy tourists. So it's, it's quite the contrast of culture and class really put on display in the show. And it is rooted in like reality in that this is kind of the nature of how tourism plays out in Hawaii. And in one of the articles I was reading um, by Townsend, published actually this year, 2023, they were mentioning that the stance of Native Hawaiians at this point and like activists within that community at this point is that they actually discourage tourism to the island um, as at this point there doesn't seem to be a way to balance tourism and like respect for the people that live there and that are indigenous to Hawaii. And essentially these activists are almost asking for like a pause so that we can figure out like how can tourism and like the money that that brings in that does support these communities exist uh, cooperatively alongside native and indigenous Hawaiians and their culture, their traditions and the land that they rightfully should be able to live on. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I personally have never been to Hawaii. It is definitely something that I would like to do. It seems very beautiful there and interesting, but I thought that was an interesting thing of like almost putting putting the brakes on so that the people who live or indigenous to Hawaii can kind of figure out what it is that they would want out of the relationship between like tourists and the US and Hawaiians. And to bring it back to the show, I think the show really highlights kind of the awkwardness of that of having like like one of the main characters that we get to know is Kai who is one of the employees at the hotel 
He's the one who has a relationship with Paula, who's a guest, and tells her about his people. And he he's like a... I don't quite know what his role is at the hotel, but, you know, he's an employee there. He's seen, like, um, running towels around and, you know, like, busting tables and stuff like that. And then at dinner time, he's asked to perform and put on, like, traditional garb and perform the traditions of his culture. And we really see this highlight of he is not welcomed into the world of the tourists, um, except for by Paula, who is kind of a person who's torn between two classes herself. And he's really just seen there to be either entertainment or to be an employee. And one of the in the very first episode, there is this line where the manager of the hotel essentially tells the employees, you know, you are not to be seen as much as possible. You are to like vanish behind a mask. Um, and I think that is really demonstrated with Kai of like the tourists, you know, the guests to the hotel don't want to know about his people's like struggle for land and their uh, like intricate parts of their culture. They want to see for half an hour a dance with fire and, and a conch shell and then have him bring fresh towels up to their room. And they don't want to engage anymore with the kind of complicated nature of how that hotel came to be on that island. So that's kind of like the overarching, I think, stressor across the show, across the season, is this tension in the relationship between tourists and uh, not just the Native Hawaiians, but the people who work at the hotel and sort of like upstairs, downstairs people, you know, upper class, lower class. And that's why I also wanted to talk about it in the context of these other relationships I'm going to talk about, because I think the the tension between these multiple groups at points reach a crisis, like a breakup would be a crisis in a relationship. And ultimately, the resolution of that crisis is to remain in homeostasis. And for this particular like larger relationship between Native Hawaiians, tourists, and workers is this sort of awkward place of not acknowledging what has happened and of not by not acknowledging, not able to work on any solutions. And this kind of awkward silence becomes the homeostasis of the relationship. And so that is my nice little transition into the other like relationship dynamics that are at play with the characters across the season. And sort of the, the thesis statement I have here is that relationships, when put under stress, are under an immense amount of pressure to maintain homeostasis. And homeostasis just is a fancy way to say the status quo. Um, and this is an idea that comes out of family systems theories. I learned this when I took a family systems class in graduate school. And um, I don't really have like a source for it because it's across all the theories. Like if you're looking at Bowen, if you're looking at Satir, if you're looking at structural versus strategic, like this idea of homeostasis kind of exists across all of them. And the idea is that when a stressor comes into a family, so, you know, if we say like a, you know, family of four, two parents, two kids, a stressor comes in, like maybe one of the parents has lost a job. As those pressures start to build, the there's kind of two choices the system has. The system can either change and adapt to it by maybe the other parent getting a job or cutting down on costs or the oldest child getting a job. Like there are adaptations that can be made to adjust to the stressor. Or the family can like double down on the ways that they've interacted in the past 
and hold on to their homeostasis without making any changes, which could look like, you know, the other parent not working and continuing to stay at home and spend money. Um, the parent that lost their job, you know, not accepting help in any way, like really saying like, I have to be the provider and not accepting any type of help, like food stamps or a food bank and really doubling down on, you know, this is my identity, my role in the family. So that's just a little example of what I mean by homeostasis. So when we see across all of these, the, the groups that I'm going to be talking about, these relationship systems that I'm going to be talking about, each one of them encounters some type of crisis while they are on vacation at the White Lotus, whether it is deciding if they even want to be in a relationship, kind of the explosion of uh, the the Mossbacher's family, which is just like almost everything goes wrong, um, or with Tanya, like this kind of the crisis of resolving her grief, all of them encounter something across their vacation, and almost all of them walk away from the vacation with their relationships in almost the exact same condition as they were when they started. So they have achieved homeostasis. They have not adapted the system to change in response to the crisis, but have reverted back to their old pattern. And that's super important in the family systems world because we know across these theories that if families stay in or if systems stay in homeostasis without ever growing or changing, that the dysfunction continues to grow. And that the next time a crisis comes along and the system isn't able to adapt to it and instead tries to pull to homeostasis, then it will just contribute to those dysfunctional patterns kind of like locking in into stone and becoming the foundation of the family. And that the goal of like a family therapist is to help the family or the system adapt to the stressor and maintain a new homeostasis with more functional patterns with the knowledge that that path creates a lot more chaos in the short term. But remaining in original homeostasis creates a lot more chaos in the long term. So family therapists have a lot of work to do and that they're trying to get everyone to buy in and understand that it's going to hurt in the meantime because anytime... There is a change in our homeostasis. It's tough. It sucks. It's hard to re-regulate the system. And so you need everyone's buy-in and to get them through that short-term crisis to be able to move on to a new, healthier homeostasis. And I would argue that everyone in the White Lotus does not do that, that they instead revert back to their old patterns. But let me go through a couple of examples to kind of show you what I mean and how it plays out within the show. So the first couple that I want to talk about is Shane and Rachel. So if you haven't watched the show, just a quick description is that Shane and Rachel are newlyweds. They are on their honeymoon at the White Lotus. Shane comes from a very wealthy family. In fact, his family has paid for much of the wedding and the honeymoon. And Rachel does not come from wealth. Um, She was a journalist before she met um, her partner. And they dated for like a very short time, got married very quickly and are now here on the first week of their multi-week honeymoon. And as they are going through their vacation at the hotel, there are these little conflicts that start to come up. The most notable one being that when they get to their room, Shane realizes that they are not in the honeymoon suite that his mom booked for them, but they are in a different suite at this hotel. And Shane becomes utterly enraged at this mix-up, And actually ends up spending almost the entire week obsessing over the fact that they didn't get the suite that was booked, harassing the manager of the hotel, and like constantly bringing it up with Rachel in conversation. 
And so with Shane and Rachel, I think the difficulty is, is that they have not been in a relationship long enough for their patterns to have, like, solidified. They dated for a relatively short time. I think it was, like, under a year before they got married. So they really haven't even known each other that long. And their system within their relationship is still kind of shifting. Because if you think about if you've ever dated or been in a relationship with anyone, right, like, the first few months you're putting on your best behavior usually right like you're you're putting on a nice front pretending you are this really cool person and that you definitely don't eat in your bed and leave crumbs everywhere or you know turn your underwear inside out instead of washing it ever after everywhere and like you know you have weird habits that you don't really show people in those first few months so everybody both partners are usually on their best behavior and then once we get farther into a relationship, whether it means like hitting a milestone, like uh, living together, getting married or having a child together, or just after a certain amount of time, usually longer than a year, probably like about two years, you're going to start to see these systems like locking into place, right? Where we have been real with each other and our communication patterns are locked in. So with Rachel and Shane, they just haven't known each other for long enough and they are really interacting with the idea they have of the other person. So Rachel is interacting with the idea she has of Shane and Shane is interacting with the idea he has of Rachel and they do not line up. So Rachel's idea of Shane and herself are very different from her husband's view of them. Shane really sees her as a trophy wife, that he is a man with a lot of money. He can give her a good life. What she brings to the table is that she's hot and young and maybe will give him children. And that she really doesn't have a role in his life other than being cool, cute, and a companion. Whereas for Rachel, her view of Shane is, it is a little bit unclear of like what she really does think of him before we meet them. But it seems to be that she has an expectation that because he's her partner, her life partner, assumably, that he will engage with her in thoughtful conversation and want to make decisions together and that the marriage would be very collaborative and also allow for space for her to be independent. And kind of these like very egalitarian views about marriage is what Rachel seems to hold. And they those are not matching up, right? Because if Shane is seeing his wife as a trophy wife, that's not very egalitarian. So they're, they're, they're definitely not matching up. And Shane throwing this tantrum over the hotel suite really highlights for Rachel that he is not going to be the type of partner who is interested in collaborative decision-making and discussion of like big picture ideas because he cannot let go of the fact that they are in a different room than the one he saw on the hotel website. And he takes it incredibly personally and she doesn't understand it because she doesn't come from money. She's never been in this type of experience before. She doesn't have this kind of sense of entitlement that large amounts of money bring with it. And so she's very clearly embarrassed by his behavior and tries to get him to stop And he just cannot let it go. And it's reinforced when his mom shows up on their honeymoon, which is like crazy (laughs) that she appears to crash their honeymoon. And she just serves to reinforce Shane's behavior. She tells them that he's in the right. She backs him up on demanding that they get into the suite. And she reinforces his message to Rachel about the importance of money. And so it really becomes a two against one as they're going through this crisis. It's Shane and his mom against Rachel. And so the kind of crisis for Rachel is, 
Is she going to stay in this marriage where she's clearly not going to be an equal partner? Decisions are going to be made for her without consulting her. Um, And there's going to be expectations about how she behaves that do not match up with how she sees her life. Or is she going to choose to leave the marriage or make her own way, maybe while staying married to him, but just like hold on to her independence and get a job and live her life the way that she wants to. And she comes really close to taking that other step. So to take the step toward independence would be to go against the homeostasis in the relationship. The homeostatic position would be to say, okay, I will become the trophy wife and I will not speak up about decisions and I'll just kind of go through this relationship allowing my decisions to be Shane's decisions. That would be the homeostatic position. And she gets really, really close to not doing that. She has a scene where she's crying and confronts Shane and just says, like, I can't do this. I, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought you wanted out of a wife. Like, I cannot do this. And you think that she's going to leave him. She even goes so far as to get another hotel room. They spend some time apart. And then when the tragedy of this show happens, which is that Shane kills Armand, the manager of the hotel, they end up getting back together. And I know that sounds like a little, (laughs) that is a shortened version. It's not like she does not get back together with him because he kills Armand and he he doesn't get in trouble for it because it's deemed self-defense because the manager was sneaking around in their hotel room and surprised Shane when Shane went up there alone. Um, So there's like almost no consequences for Shane for this crime. And the, one of the last scenes of the show is Shane is at the hotel or at the airport. He's by himself. It seems like Rachel has left him. She's, she is not coming back home with him or not going to the next stage of the honeymoon with him. And then he looks over at the counter and it's her. She's walked in and she's getting her ticket. And we, and she says like, she's going to stay that she's happy with him and we see them hug. And so that scene is the visual embodiment of homeostasis, of her saying, I give it up. I give up all the independence that I thought I wanted. I will be your wife and I will do my part by being happy about the limited role that I have in your in your life and not um, you know, complaining or making ultimatums like she was doing before. So that is very clear picture of homeostasis. And I would say that for Rachel, it would have been a lot more possible for her to to leave or change the way in which she entered into this relationship because it was so new, right? Like I was saying up at the top, like the, the patterns haven't really been established because they just haven't been together long enough. And so by her doing this, it means that the next time this happens where, you know, maybe in a year and a half when she starts to feel this way again and starts to think about how she can individuate within the relationship, she's going to be more likely to maintain this homeostasis of not being individuated from Shane because of this pattern has been established. So I hope that that example is starting to make it clear what I mean by this homeostasis and that the pull is really to stay doing the same thing. Because it was it was really hard for Rachel to tell him, to tell her husband, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to live like this. And she is seen to be very emotional. She is crying. She's clearly distraught. Um, she's seeking advice from other people in the hotel. Like, a workers are coming up to her and asking her if she's okay because she looks so distraught. Like, so the short-term crisis part was really hard. And that's why the pull to homeostasis is so enticing because it makes all of that go away, right? By 
coming back to Shane and saying, okay, I'm happy. I'm happy with us. Whatever I said before doesn't matter. I'm happy here. It gives her that relief. And that relief is what reinforces the likelihood that happens again. Because it's so much easier to go back to, okay, everything is fine. Let's pretend things are fine. Because that doesn't make you cry in, right, in the immediate, right? It probably makes you cry in the long run, but it doesn't make you cry in the short term and gets rid of all those negative, nasty feelings that she doesn't want to be feeling. And I don't want to be bagging on Rachel too much here because I think the same thing is true for Shane. That the crisis for Shane in this moment was, was going to be, would he be okay with being married to a woman who does not fit his standards for what a relationship should look like? Would he be able to tolerate the anxiety building up within himself of my wife is her own person and is not going to agree with me? Because we can see from his behavior that it's really uncomfortable when people don't agree with him or give him what he wants. And so he's in this place where he's going to have to make a decision. Do I want to live my life with someone who's not going to give me what I want and put me in that place of discomfort? And I'm not saying he kills Armand <laughs> because of this situation. Um, but I think that if if that had not happened and they had not been reunited at the airport in the way that they had, that Shane would have been um, pulled to treat her in a different way because of the anxiety he felt about her trying to be her own person. So his homeostasis would have been to kind of go back to this very shallow way of relating of all these conversations are just about what they're going to eat next or what trip they're going to go on next and to not engage with her in a deeper conversation and to to move the relationship maybe forward into a more functional pattern would be to to kind of meet Rachel partway and give her some of this sense of agency in the relationship and be able to talk about things and tolerate when she disagrees with him rather than demanding complete and utter loyalty. And I do think that although, you know, I think Shane and Rachel's wealth does not make them as close to like, you know, quote unquote, normal people like, you know, the people I'm probably talking to right now. Uh, but I think that this dynamic in their relationship is quite common um, of that there being someone, there being two very different ideas about what the relationship should look like. And essentially one person loses and the other wins, right? Shane won this one. He he gets the relationship that he was looking for and Rachel subsumes her desires and needs to match that for him. I think this is super common and we see this a lot when people come in for couples therapy is that when they got together, they got locked into these relationship patterns and then five, six, seven years down the line, those aren't working anymore because one person is tired of having to constantly subsume themselves and their needs and desires for another person and the person who, you know, quote unquote, won is oblivious. That's the person who, when you go into couples therapy, is like, I didn't even know anything was wrong. It's the person who's been getting what they wanted out of the accommodating homeostasis. So another topic for another day, but I, I just wanted to highlight that I think although in a sense the show can be kind of fantastical and the, the wealth that we're seeing is not what most of us experience, that these dynamics are very similar and relatable across uh, different types of relationship patterns. Okay, I think I've spent enough time with Shane and Rachel, so let's move on to the Mossbachers, which is the family of four with a guest uh, visitor who are on vacation at this resort as well. So we have Mark, the, the father, who we find out has cheated on his wife and is kind of continually atoning for that uh, lapse in fidelity. We have Nicole, the, the mother, who is kind of, I think, the symbol of white feminism, 
is almost like a Gwyneth Paltrow figure in that she runs this very successful company. She's like a girl boss kind of person. She's working through most of the trip. And she's got a lot of ideas about gender and politics. Um, Then we have Olivia, who's the oldest daughter. She is hell-bent on disagreeing with her parents on every position they've ever taken. She has with her her friend Paula. Um, They go to college together. And Paula is kind of torn in between, you know, Olivia and her family and Kai, which I'll get into later. And then we have Quinn, who's the youngest son, um, and he is essentially a very uh, online young man who who's very isolated and spends most of his time on his devices, like on social media or playing games. And uh, I think Quinn is probably the only person who does not return to homeostasis within the family and has a ending that demonstrates his ability to break out of a pattern in a way. So if we're looking at this idea of homeostasis across the system, and I think uh, I've talked about this before in terms of subsystems on the episode about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I did with my friend Becca. So if you want to learn more about subsystems, you can listen to that episode. Um, But this idea that within one family system, there are multiple subsystems. So the parents form a subsystem, the siblings, etc. So if we're looking at the Mossbackers, we have these multiple systems. And so Mark and Nicole, the, you know, as husband and wife are, they, they actually came into the vacation with a crisis and that Mark had cheated on Nicole. And we find out throughout the show that he bought her a ridiculously priced pair of bracelets to make up for his cheating. I think they're like $75,000 or something like absolutely insane. And so we see them at the not resolution point of that crisis, but clearly locked into a dysfunctional pattern around it where Nicole feels, rightfully so, like very hurt by the infidelity and is holding it over his head. And Mark is oscillating between atoning for the sin and being upset that he's being asked to atone for his sins. And he actually really displaces that uh, anger or upset and really gets locked into this argument with his daughter, Olivia, about privilege and who should be responsible for making social change. And so a lot of the conversations that the family has as a whole is about these kind of political topics about, you know, like race and privilege and wealth. And Mark ends up giving a lot of pretty classic you know, like white guy lines about, you know, I'm the good guy and uh, I shouldn't have to be punished because there's bad people out there. And I'm the guy in the in the meetings that are saying, knock that off. And, you know, if we have money, why can't we enjoy it? Are we supposed to just sit around and, and mourn the fact that we have money? And so this is an example of how, because there is turmoil within one subsystem between the husband and wife subsystem, there it's creating conflict in the other subsystems that in order to kind of make up for the feeling he has toward his wife, which is that he messed up and he's atoning for his sin, but wants to, you know, fight back and, and tell her, you know, enough, like, haven't I, haven't I done enough? He can't do that to her because they're not locked in a pattern where that's possible. So he in turn does it to his children. And with Olivia, it's very clear, right? He's getting into these fights with her about, Um, these big topics and really articulating to her like I don't think that I should be blamed for this 
And with Quinn, his son, he's pulling Quinn in to this kind of turmoil with his wife in a very different way, in a way that is a little more subversive in that he's oversharing. He's telling Quinn too much about the affair. The, the kids didn't know about the affair. So he tells Quinn about the affair, about the bracelets. He's trying to kind of get Quinn's buy-in to agree with him of like, yeah, you've done enough. You said you were sorry. And like commiserate with him on how unfair it is that his wife is holding this transgression over his head. And so Olivia is getting Mark's displaced anger and frustration. And Quinn is getting triangulated in, in that by almost colluding with his son, by telling him about this stuff, Mark is trying to get the approval or almost like um, buy-in of his son to be like, yeah, dad, you're right. What you think about this situation is right. And Quinn is unfortunately not able to do that and actually ends up telling the whole family that he knows about the affair and the bracelets and kind of blowing up Mark's, you know, seeking approval. He blows it up in, in front of the whole family. Um, and, and I think that is why Quinn is also the one who's able to kind of escape the system for a moment in that he he doesn't necessarily always go along with the dysfunctional patterns and is able to sometimes see them as dysfunctional. His position in the family and the way in which he gets left out of a lot of things because they assume he's just going to be on his phone the whole time really it does allow him to be observant and within the first few episodes um Quinn's phone and tablet actually get washed away in the ocean so he's without devices and becoming a lot more aware as the show goes on and so it's very starts to become very um observant of these dynamics in his family so i know that i like cross through the systems a lot there but i think that this family is a really clear example of how when there's turmoil in one of the subsystems, the off the pull often is to pull in other family members to relieve the tension, right? Mark getting into these like enactments with his daughter or colluding with his son is an effort for him to relieve some of the pressure he feels because his relationship with his wife is in turmoil. And much like with Shane and Rachel, where the anxiety of the of the crisis in the moment fuels their uh entrenchment into their patterns mark and nicole are are getting locked into their patterns even more and because they've been together longer they have two kids together they their their family system has just been in place for longer it is very easy for them to go back to their homeostasis and so while they're at the hotel the pressure is building and actually the way in which the relationship kind of snaps back to quote-unquote normal is that over the course of the show, because Paula is feeling so guilty about knowing that she's here with a rich white family on Kai's people's land, she tells him to go break into the Mossbacker's hotel room and steal the $75,000 bracelets because She's like, you take just those and you're going to be able to pay for a lawyer, like take essentially take everything in her jewelry, uh, in her safe. But because of like a you know series of very unfortunate coincidences, he gets caught by Mark. Um, at, Nicole had been in, had come into the room. Kai threatened her. Mark shows up and tackles Kai and essentially saves his wife. And that snaps the system back together. And it's very clear why it snaps the system together in that. In that moment, the gender roles of the husband and wife were put back into homeostasis in that Mark was the 
aggressive, masculine one who's protecting his wife. And Nicole is in this like helpless position where she had all of her power stripping, stricken from her. And Mark is coming in to kind of to, to rescue her, right? A very like textbook fairy tale man woman role. And before that, the roles had kind of been reversed in that Nicole was able to assert herself as the more dominant masculine in the relationship because Mark had cheated and she was holding this over him by emasculating him. She was refusing to have sex with him. She was, um, you know, privately diminishing some of the things that he was saying, even if in front of the children she was not. All of this stuff behind the scenes, right, are ways in which she was subverting the, the gender roles. And by having him come in and rescue her, it kind of flips it back and, and he's able to feel like a, you know, quote unquote, like a man again. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is right or the way in which their relationship should be to be healthy, but I think it is the way in which their homeostasis was originally formed back when they started their relationship and their family. And they had been out of whack for so long. The stress had been on them that when they have this opportunity to kind of snap back into it, they take it. And we see after this attack that Nicole and Mark are back on it. They are more in love than ever. They are having sex again. They are, you know, loving to each other in front of their kids. They have stopped arguing and have become kind of like a united front. And as they snap back into homeostasis, Olivia also gets pulled back. So up until this point, Olivia has been really confrontational with her parents, disagreeing with everything they say, calling them out on things. But on the kind of other side in her relationship with Paula is we see this pattern where Olivia has to be in complete control of what Paula is doing. She wants her and Paula's actions to be exactly the same. She cannot tolerate that Paula is interacting with Kai and kind of developing a relationship with him. Like she needs them to be together in a way that, if I'm being honest, has kind of a homoerotic subtext in that she wants to like possess Paula and it's not quite clear if that's because she's attracted to Paula and you know wants wants Paula all for herself in a romantic way or if it's like a purely um like jealousy thing like she just does not want Paula to be different than her and does not want Paula to have anything better than her and we find out that they have a history of Olivia swooping in on men that Paula aren't interested in and stealing them. And, you know, whether it's having sex with them first or initiating a relationship with them first, that Olivia has done this in the past and is trying to do it in the present with Kai. And so as the family snaps back into homeostasis, Olivia starts to shift the way in which she treats Paula. And essentially, as she becomes more threatened by Paula trying to individuate out of their relationship, she it, it makes more sense for her to kind of pull back into her family. And so one of the last scenes we have of the family all together is Paula has found out that Kai has been arrested for breaking into the safe. And Olivia, both knowing that Paula was attracted to Kai and knowing that her family is you know, kind of back to their, their old ways after this event, essentially turns on Paula in the moment. And whereas all up to this point, she and Paula had kind of been a united front against her parents, Olivia starts to side with her parents 
against Paula in a very like public way at, at this meal. Um, and I think it just serves again to show that when the pressure is on and crisis is coming up, it is easier to default toward the way things have always been. And after that, we have this scene where Paula and Olivia are in bed together because they've been sharing the, the pullout couch in the living room. Paula is clearly crying because she is upset that Kai is going to jail and Olivia comforts her and basically gives her the message, we don't need to talk about this ever again. Like, this is not something you need to feel responsible for and kind of pulls Paula even into this homeostasis of we are rich people. We do not need to concern ourselves with what goes on with the poor and, and downtrodden, right? We protect our own and you don't need to concern yourself with Kai. And it serves to reinforce the message that Paula is best off with Olivia, not trying to, you know, make her it on her own or connect with people outside of this kind of upper crust society that Olivia lives in. So even within this friendship, this homeostasis has been um, reinforced that Paula has learned this lesson that I might get boyfriends stolen from me and I might get credit for things taken away from me, but I benefit by having the protection of this wealthy white family looking out for me. And like, that's a little dark to think about, right? Like Paula giving up essentially these ideals she has about what is right and how money should be divided and who should be protected essentially are all for show because at the end, her actions are to align herself with this wealthy family. And that is how strong this pull is to maintain our systems because it is incredibly anxiety and distress provoking to think about, I have to differentiate from this person who wants me to act a certain way and maybe does hold an element of power over me or holds access to a world that I want to be a part of that just adds an incentive to it. But honestly, like if you think about in your own relationships or your own life where when things are changing, even if they're changing for the better, the desire is to go back to how things were because at least you knew what was coming, right? At least you knew what to expect. And that is the message that anxiety sends to us, right? Anxiety tells us the scary part is the unknown. If we can stay in places where we know what is going to happen next, even if what's going to happen next is bad, we can at least prepare for it. Uh, and if we don't know what's coming, then we can't prepare for it. And so within these these family systems theories and, and this idea of homeostasis, it, it is identified that anxiety is this driving factor, that when change is coming, there is an anxiety in that anxiety is the way in which we react to the unknown. And so to soothe anxiety or to soothe the unknown coming, we retreat back to the known. That's really, I think, the simplest way to describe homeostasis. And I know it took 40 minutes to get to that simplest explanation, but sometimes you got to sprinkle in the good stuff at the end. But you can also see how with like the Mossbackers, achieving homeostasis becomes a lot more complicated when there's more people. And in, in, a, in a situation like this where there are, you know, a, a subsystem that's clearly up high, right? Like the parents have more authority over the children than the children do over their parents. You know, they, they tend to be the ones that kind of lead the homeostasis. But ultimately, anyone can be kind of the, the trendsetter of homeostasis. It's just that it becomes very complicated the more people you add in. Whereas with Shane and Rachel, it's really like one person is getting subverted and the other person is not. Whereas in the Mossbackers, you have four people who are all in different relationships with the other three uh, that complicate like kind of who's going to win out. And so at the end, 
it really is that because Mark and Nicole were able to kind of come back together to their homeostasis, they're the ones who kind of win and Olivia falls back into place. Now, the reason I said that Quinn does not return to homeostasis is that the end of the show, we see him uh, running away from the airport to go back to the resort because he has struck up a friendship with some native Hawaiians who uh, every morning from the beach that the resort is on ship off into this uh, boat that they row all together and are practicing for this like trip that they will take where they row across the islands and it's it's kind of part of like their their cultural traditions and Quinn befriends them and starts rowing with them and really has this revelation about like nature and earth and human connection and you know he he gets kind of like de-radicalized from his technology isolation and makes this big pronouncement to his family that I want to stay in Hawaii I want to be here for the the sh- the trip where we're going to row across the islands and uh, this is my new plan. This is what I want to, you know, dedicate my life to. And he's like 16. So like, obviously that's not going to happen. Like his parents aren't going to let him do that. But instead of just saying, okay, I'll be quiet. You're getting me a new phone. I will, you know, take on my role of the kind of detached member of the family who goes along to get along. He decides this is what I really want. And I'm going to leave um, my family behind and, and run away and go back to the, the beach. And this is very different from what we've seen of Quinn is that he does not cause a lot of problems. He's not really um, combative in any way. He doesn't really go against what he's being told. In fact, every night his sister and Paula tell him to go sleep on the beach and he does. He never fights back. And so this is why I think it's him kind of moving into a new pattern of interaction because he's able to say like, "Uh, you're telling me what to do and I'm not going to do it. Whether this is the healthiest or not, I'm not sure. I think it's kind of a little bit extreme to think that, like, he's going to live on this island <laughs> rowing around at 16. Like, I, I, he's assuming a lot of, like, the, the people that he's met on the beach. But he is, I think, taking a, a, a step in that kind of direction of, you know, holding on to what he wants. And although there was probably a lot of anxiety rising up about rebelling against his parents and his family system, he kind of stepped through it and went toward what he's wanting there are you know some tweaking (laughs) tweaking to be done to kind of fine-tune how he's maybe able to hold on to himself in the midst of the family system um but i i think it it kind of demonstrates that he's ready to move through the anxiety to establish a a new way of interacting so yeah complex the the mossbackers and all of that is of course elevated by the fact that they have a lot of money and that inbreeds with it a, a sense of entitlement uh, to you know get what they want, but I think that they are a complex system because of all the different moving pieces. And the last person that I want to talk about real briefly because she's in essence out of a system is Tanya, who is the character played by Jennifer Coolidge. She's a fan- fantastic. Jennifer Coolidge is so good with this role. And in the first season, she's the only character that comes back in season two for another fun little spoiler. Um, but she's the only character who is the- on this trip by themselves. And so she has come to the White Lotus to spread her mother's ashes. And she's really struggling with it at the beginning. We see her almost unable to walk because uh, she says her back is messed up and she seems to be carrying a lot of her grief like in her body. Um, she she can't quite get herself to spread the ashes. She makes several attempts and 
just isn't quite able to do it until like the end of the show and she shares a lot about her mother having um some type of personality disorder it seems like probably borderline personality disorder um that is mentioned but it's just you know I don't know if that was the official diagnosis, but that's what, what Tanya shares. And it was a very, very difficult relationship she had with her mother and is really embodied by the fact that almost every other word she says about her mother is negative, but at the same time, she is unable to let go of the ashes and unable to fully say goodbye to her mother. And so we see her seeking a, a sense of attachment and validation from other people around her because she no longer has someone who's who's doing that for her. So she's at a point where she's out of the system, right? Her mother has died. She doesn't have um, a family, right? Like or a, a partner or any other system. And so she, there's really no way to flee to homeostasis when the person you were homeostatic with is gone. And so grief can be a very big disruptor of this process because you can't, you can't go back to homeostasis after someone is gone. It's just, it, it, it will be impossible to fully go back. And so what uh, Tanya is doing is she is seeking what she was getting from her mother, the positive she was getting from her mother, which seems to be at least some type of companionship or attachment. And in some ways, she's seeking the validation maybe she wasn't getting from her mother. So she's seeking all of those things from people. And the first person she latches onto when she gets to the hotel is Belinda, the woman who runs the the spa, who gives her a massage, does some some healing work with her, and clearly is one of the first people to actually truly listen to Tanya since since she's lost her mother, or probably even before that. And so Tanya latches onto her immediately. And I think that this style of relating to people is actually quite common in the children of people with, with a personality disorder, particularly BPD, in that uh, you kind of not not that like you know BPD is is genetic or that you pass it on by parenting but the relationship style the the intense closeness immediate intense closeness of interpersonal relationships with a lot of validation seeking that type of behavior gets passed on um to to the children and so we we might say like that Tanya has like borderline traits because she's repeating these really intense emotion uh emotional patterns in her relationships and so in a sense, because Belinda is the first person that she meets or the first person that she feels can help her, she latches on very quickly and starts making a lot of promises. She tells Belinda that she's going to give her the money to start her own wellness center, that she's like the, the best healing that there's ever been, and that, you know, she they're, they're going to go into business together. And this really strong attachment continues. Belinda is there on the boat when Tanya is trying to throw her mother's ashes in the water and can't get through it. Belinda is like having dinner with her every night and, uh, you know, taking her calls anytime she has something come up and, you know, continuing to give her spa treatments and, and other types of alternative healing. And it's, it's growing close, really close, really fast. And probably outside of a, a relationship between, you know, essentially like an employee and, and a, and a visitor to the hotel. And it, it's complicated by the fact that Tanya believes Belinda has cured her of something um, but this attachment is that, you know, Ta Tanya needs to latch onto someone to get her sense of validation. Uh, otherwise, she's like kind of unable to pull herself together. And it seems that from what we know about Tanya, what we find out about her in the show is that she typically seeks that attachment or validation from men, from men she's been in romantic relationships with. 
she just didn't have the opportunity to do that at the time because pretty much everyone else we see at the hotel is partnered or or with family or, or something like that. And so Belinda is it for her until she meets Greg, who is there on his own. He's in the room next to her. He's single. They they hit it off and she starts to get that validation from Greg because he is romantically interested in her. And she immediately drops Belinda, like almost immediately, like starts canceling plans on her. Uh, Belinda types up this like very beautiful business proposal she has and Tanya essentially refuses well she takes it but then like clearly doesn't read it and essentially tells Belinda like now is not the time I'm not going to be able to help you after making all of these promises and so I think that we start to see for Tanya that this is her homeostasis of chasing the strongest source of validation and then if you kind of like line up the the hierarchy of who's validating to her men seem to be at the top particularly men she's in a romantic relationship with are at the top and so she's getting validation or attachment from anyone like lower down on that kind of hierarchy she will ditch them when the opportunity arises and that this is this is her pattern of her jumping from relationship to relationship and understandably belinda feels very betrayed by this she's very hurt by this and is you know unable to provide care for other people because of how she has felt that she got tricked by Tanya. And that's totally understandable. I think Belinda's reaction is 100% understandable and like totally based on reality. Um, And of course, like she's not going to know what is Tanya's relationship pattern because she's never met this woman before. This is the first time like, of course, you're going to take at face value what someone is saying to you, especially when they say it over and over again and reiterate the sincerity of their promises there's no way for you to know that they're lying unless you have that history so uh you know unfortunately belinda essentially becomes like a victim of tanya's um homeostatic behavior or seeking of that comfort uh in different types of relationships and so for tanya the crisis of the vacation was to be able to say goodbye to her mom and in a way she does resolve the crisis she is able to finally throw the ashes into the ocean but she resolves it in a homeostatic way by seeking this validation from a man and kind of reneging on her promises to the person that she was originally getting that attachment and validation from. And we can probably guess that in other areas of Tanya's life, she's done this before. She has probably hurt people's feelings by moving on to the next relationship so quickly or moving on to the next project so quickly that there isn't time to figure out what's going on. And so this kind of emotional whiplash that she's leaving behind her is not something that she ever has to deal with. She doesn't have to deal with the consequences of it, which is what reinforces it to be homeostatic. She's going to leave this island and never see Belinda again. We get like a brief mention of her in season two, but she doesn't, she clearly doesn't even remember Belinda's name by the time we, we see her again in season two. And so it is clear that Tanya is able to relieve her own anxiety through this type of pattern in relationships and doesn't have to deal much with the fallout from the other person because she's able to to move on quickly and, and do what she needs to do to, to get out of there. And again, I think this pattern probably comes out of the way in which she was raised and how she interacted with her mother and saw her mother interact. Um, but it is also, you know, my favorite saying, your mental health is not your fault, but it is now, unfortunately, your responsibility. And so if she 
is able to be aware of this pattern, then she needs to be able to do what she can to fix it or, you know, maybe make some changes in it in some way so that she's not hurting people uh, in, in the way that she used to. And so I think I've gone over most of the relationships that I wanted to cover in this episode. There are, of course, so many more, and I didn't even really get to get into the staff of the hotel, um, who all have their own dynamics with each other as well. Um, but I think that these families and couples show really clear examples of how homeostasis can be so powerful in a relationship and kind of pull you back into continuous patterns of of behaving and like lock those things in over time and the kind of time difference between uh Shane and Rachel's relationship the Mossbackers and even Tanya's relationship really can show you how the longer these things go on the harder they are to change or to feel like you can get away from them so our takeaway is that when we feel ourselves pulled to respond to partners or friends or family members in certain ways, the way to kind of evaluate is this going to be functional or dysfunctional is to ask, is this relieving my anxiety immediately by reverting back to old patterns? Uh, or is it going to help me develop a new pattern in the long run, even if it's going to be hard in the in the, the short term? Those are kind of questions to probably deal with with the therapist, <laughs> but I think that those are kind of like the, that's the kind of take-home part of homeostasis is like, it is what I'm doing just to relieve the anxiety or is it to forge a new, more functional pattern um, in my relationships or, or a new type of communication or, or relating to each other? So with that, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way through. It's always a pleasure to have you along on the journey with me and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.